0: through the the chapters of Proverbs, and uh, we we finished chapter 6 a few weeks ago, and um, it's been filled with lots of advice, lots of counsel, lots of law, lots of things we need to do to to walk in the the way of wisdom. And uh, this morning, as I really prayed and thought about it, I'm not sure that we need Proverbs chapter 7 at this moment in time. Proverbs 7 is another message about the dangers of adultery. Um, but this morning, beginning with Advent, we start our Advent candles. Uh, what I thought would be good for us this morning is get a healthy dose of Jesus for the next four weeks. We think about uh, Christmas and Christmas time this Christmas season. So, what we're going to do uh, for this Sunday and the next four Sundays is we are going to focus our attention on one verse of Scripture, John chapter one and verse 14. You can open your Bibles there if you would like to. John chapter 1 and verse 14. Darren mentioned that John Piper preached some 14 sermons about hope. Well, I'm going to preach four sermons on one verse. A little bit easier than 14 sermons on one word. Um, It's not really a difficult verse. You can memorize it really in moments if you try. Maybe parents, this would be a good verse for you all to memorize with your children. As As we'll be over this again next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. Which which reads like this, John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse describes Christmas. When God became a man, Emmanuel, with us, God, or God with us. We see in verse 1 how, how God is described as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There we see the Word being God Himself. We see in verse 2 the eternality of this Word. This Word, He was in the beginning with God. That that when things began, if ever things began with God, there God was, this Word with God. We see the creating power of this Word in verse 3. And things were made through Him. And without Him was not made anything that was made. Of course, this Word was unmade. Uh, Through Him, that is through Jesus, the the world was made through this Word. In verse 4, we see the life-giving power. Of this word. In him was life. And the life was the light of man. And in verse 14 we see this word becoming flesh. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We call this the incarnation of the word. The incarnation of Jesus. That's what incarnation means. carne right at the heart of that word. is Is a word that means flesh or meat. So incarnation. Like we have chili con Carne. Casacón carne with meat this is the Spanish word for meat. Incarnation means in meat or in fleshment. So, what Christmas is all about when God took on human flesh. And this Christmas season, I want to use John 1.14 to guide us in what this means. And in this week, we will we'll look at what it means for God to take on flesh. And then next week, we'll consider how it is that Jesus manifests God's glory, because it's right there in John one. 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glorious of the only son from the father and then in week three we're going to look at grace and week four we're going to look at truth because those are the the other words there that jesus was full of grace and full of truth flesh today glory next week grace the third week and truth the fourth week Because so those are the four elements of john 1:14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us And we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, this week He dwelt among us in flesh. I just want us to think about what it meant that Jesus took on flesh. It means that He became a man. He became fully human. The picture that John gives us here is that of a a tent. Jesus pitched His tent among us. It's the word, used, translated here, dwelt, Ascanosin. It speaks of the skin. It speaks of just a, a, a flesh encampment, just a, a skin sort of shelter that you have. It's very temporary, and that's what Jesus did. His residence with us was very temporary. It's the idea of a tent, right? You can pitch it quickly. You can take it up, carry it on your back, go to every place you want, and pitch it again and have your night someplace the next night, wherever you want. And that's what Jesus did. When he dwelt among us, he tented among us. He pitched his tent to live with us. And this morning, really, I want to consider what that means, that he, he pitched his tent among us. What, what it means that he became flesh. Essentially, this morning, I'm just going to preach to you the humanity of Jesus. Because he was fully human. Fully God, fully man. That's what the church fathers have always said. It's what Christmas is all about. It's about God coming into our existence, living among us as a man. Now, there are many things that could be said about Jesus as a, as a man and what it was to ex- his experience during his days of, of flesh here upon the earth, and, and far too many that any sermon could, could ever cover. But what I want to do this morning is, since we're in John, is I just want to use John as sort of an overview to look and see what it is that John says about Jesus in the flesh. And even here, I'll just kind of scratch the surface because it's 21 chapters about Jesus walking on on the earth. But that's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through John. I just, I just, that's all I did this week. I just kind of said, okay, so where in John is we seeing Jesus in flesh? And what, what does that mean? So that's, that's my sermon today. I got six points. I think they'll be clear. You'll see them. I think you'll say, well, of course... Um, But I think if we think of them more deeply, we can behold the wondrous mystery of these things. First of all, it's obvious that he walked and talked with us. I mean, that's what it means to be a a man, is to walk and talk with us. Look down at chapter 1, verse 35. And and we're just going to go, just write chapter by chapter, just according to what I saw. Verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with his two disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God pointing there to jesus and the two disciples heard him say this and they followed jesus and jesus turned and saw them and followed and said to them what are you seeking and they said to him rabbi which means teacher where are you staying and he said come and you will see so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with them that day for it was about the the tenth hour now the most uh, Significant, interesting, and significant thing here in these verses is that that John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. Uh, this is the one who comes to take away the sin of the world, according to chapter one and verse twenty-nine. And, and that is what the Gospel of John is, is all about, is Jesus being the sacrificial lamb of God, that sacrifice that died in our place for our sins, that we might live through him. And we can't forget that. that. That's like the most important thing in John writing his Gospel. It's his purpose. He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And, and believing in the Son of God, this Lamb of God who was sacrificed upon the cross. We must never forget that because we have true life when we trust in His life. But this morning, we're not thinking about that. We're kind of coming at this text thinking about what it means that Jesus dwelt in flesh and blood. It means that He He walked with us. Um, you, you can even see it there of, of the disciples following Jesus as he, as he walked by, right? Verse 36, and and John looked as He it saw at Jesus as Jesus walked by. Jesus had two legs. He had two feet. He had ten toes. He had toenails. And when he walked, dirt got under his toenails because his feet became dirty and dusty in that dry climate. They needed cleaning. I, I, I trust you remember the, the tender scene in chapter 13 when Jesus took the apron of a slave. He bowed down, he washed the disciples' feet because they were filthy. And the feet of Jesus got filthy too as he walked along the road. It means that Jesus didn't float on the air. He didn't take a magic carpet ride wherever he wanted to go. He didn't fly, he didn't float, he walked. Not only did he walk with us, he, he talked with us. And it seems obvious, but really it's incredible that God spoke with us. And Jesus, we see, here, we see him here listening. We see him here responding. We see him here questioning and commanding. In verse 38, he asked these disciples who, who followed after him. As he noticed them and observed them, he said, what are you seeking? He's just asking this question. And when they said, where are you staying? He said, come and you will see. He's just telling them, why, why don't you follow me? And they walked along and they followed him along the way. Jesus walked with us. He talked with us. Or you might say it this way, he was one of the guys. He's just one of us. That's really the point of of his humanity. Now, certainly Jesus was a leader in every every situation which he was in. He took no cues from anyone except the Father. He didn't talk down to the disciples, but he he talked with them. Every day he got in his 15,000 words. And we have only a fraction of what Jesus said. But just consider some of the things he would have said, right? When he was a young boy. And out going about at his school or whether he was going to go over to a friend's house or whatever, he would, he would tell his mother, he, I'm, going though, I'm going here today and I'll be back ever ever, a specific time when he would be home. So he talking with his mom, telling his mom about his plans. As he grew up in, in the carpenter shop, he would interact with the customers and, and talk with them about the dimensions of what it is that they wanted to have built and, and what was for and its purpose and design and, and get that, that all settled. He said thank you to the baker who exchanged his shekels for a, a loaf of bread on his way home from work. At the dinner table, he would he would ask politely for the, the food to be passed at the dinner table. And before going to bed, he would say goodnight to those in the house wherever he was staying. And of course, he said his prayers. He was human in, in every sense of the word. And that's my point. So he walked and talked with us like everybody else walks and talks. I mean he, he, he dwelt with us. And my, my second point now, I'm going to get a little, little bit more advanced here. Second is that he partied with us. This is chapter two, which records the wedding at Cana. Look at chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, so Jesus was invited, he and all his disciples, and they went to the wedding. Imagine him sitting, watching a wedding. You've seen weddings before. You've seen the procession. The weddings in Jewish time were probably a little bit different than they are now, but there's similar elements of some kind of procession, everyone coming in and the bride coming in and and all standing up and admiring as she walks down the aisle. Jesus would have been in the congregation listening to whatever the rabbi said, whatever rites they went through, whatever message he gave to to the couple. He would have heard the vows that they said. He smiled with joy when the rabbi pronounced the couple, man and wife, perhaps even seeing them kiss, if that was the custom of the day. And Jesus went to the reception afterwards, and that's where we find him in verse 3, when they they run out of wine, which means this, Jesus didn't leave early. He stayed long enough for all of the wine to be consumed. And then if you know the story, of course, you know that Jesus changed the water into wine. It's It's a great story that deserves our attention especially as verse 11 says this is the first sign that jesus did at cana in galilee and we'll look at this story next week as we consider the glory of jesus we'll look through the seven signs in john as we see how they point to his glory but today we're considering the humanity of jesus the fact that he's he's at this wedding and that he partied with us and don't get me wrong it's not like he's he's jumping up and down in the mosh pit right with everyone he's not doing that he's not he's not drunk and and out of control but he celebrated. And he, and, he, and he got to see that, that he was like any other man, that he, he loved the celebration. He, 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 he loved the food and, and the drink and to be satisfied and to be happy and, and to be merry. You ever consider this? Why did he turn the water into wine? So that the party could continue because he wanted to see the party continue for some some on time and and no doubt right that these jewish weddings you know you see the jewish people dancing jesus certainly joined in on the dancing fun with everybody now at this point we see not only did jesus have hands and feet and eyes and teeth he also had a heart to enjoy the good things of life smiling and laughing and sharing in the joy i love weddings because they're happy like, everything about the wedding day is happy. Now, there's sometimes weddings are difficult and hard, but, but, but there are happy times. I love weddings for that purpose. And Jesus loved them, too, as he ate and drank and enjoyed the festivities. And, and the point is this, right? What, what does it mean that Jesus became a man? It, he became a man in, in every sense of the word, that, that, that he rejoiced with us. He, he partied with us. And that, that's Christmas. See, God isn't far off and detached from us. He came near to us to experience life with us and eventually to give us life through his death. And he experienced the joys, but he also experienced some of the difficulties of life as well. We see this in my third point. Not only did he just walk and talk with us, not only did he party with us, but thirdly, he also felt fatigue like us. We see this in chapter 4. We saw this chapter a few months ago when we consider the surprising conversion of the woman at the well who encountered Jesus there. Jesus exposed her sin to her. He revealed himself to be the Messiah. She then went and evangelized her city in Samaria and brought everyone out. And like the whole city believed in Jesus through this woman. But have you ever considered why it is that Jesus was sitting alone at the well to meet this woman in the first place? It just shows his humanity. Look, look at verse 5 of chapter 4. <coughs> he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. I mean, that's historical references, specific places. When Ivan and I were in Israel some 20 years ago, we went to this very place, to the very well where this was. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, when John said, wearied as he was from his journey, it's a fancy way of saying he was tired. John and his disciples had spent the day traveling north from Judea on their way, from Jerusalem, rather, toward Judea. And they'd been traveling all day. And they didn't travel like we do, like when we travel today, Right? We, we sit in our minivan with uh, the air conditioning blowing on us, and we're just cruising right along. And uh, they walked in the hot sun for miles and miles and hours and hours. And when we get tired from traveling, it's like sleepiness. We need some coffee, and we need to get out, and we need to stretch our legs They need to rest their legs from hiking so much. And they don't need coffee. They need some energy. Give me some carbohydrates. Give me something to to, to get me going. Give me some sugars. Give me some Snickers or something. Because their body would be like worn out and and difficult. And, And that's the fatigue that Jesus faced. He was tired. He was sitting by the well to rest. John identifies the time as the sixth hour. The day started when the sun came up, about 6 o'clock in the morning, so 6th hour was like high noon. This is like in the heat of the day. And perhaps Jesus was near the well because maybe there was some shade there. Because you drew water and you spent some time there, shade would have been nice. A nice uh, temporary lean-to may have been put up there. Maybe as the presence of water helped cool the place, it's, he could just lean over the well and feel the updraft of the cool air from the well. We don't know why, but did you notice even that he was alone? We, we read in verse 8 that, that the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus was alone, the 12 disciples that were in the city. Why didn't Jesus go with them? Well, the God answer, of course, is that he had a divine appointment with this woman who would come and draw water from the well, who would go back to Sychar and announce who Jesus was. But maybe the best human answer is that Jesus was more fatigued than any of the 12 disciples too fatigued to go and take that walk into the city with them to get some food. And so he was alone. And, and even when the disciples returned with food in hand, they urged him to eat. Look at, look at verse 31. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Like, you're hungry. You, you need to get something in you. Like, like a traveling companion who, who would just say, you need to eat something. You need to get going. And I think it's because they knew that Jesus was worn out and knew that he was in need of food. But here's the point Jesus knew what it was to be tired. When he ran or walked up a steep hill, he knew what it was to be winded. Right? Make some kind of jog or you're hurrying someplace, you go, (sighs) Jesus knew that. He experienced sore muscles after a long day of working or walking. He knew what it was to be wiped out at the end of the day, drained and tired a long day of work of making whatever he made in his carpenter shop and really there's a simple and straightforward application of us Hebrews 4 15 says we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin Jesus our high priest can sympathize with us in our weaknesses in every way since he has been there because he's lived the human experience. He knows what it is to be physically tired. He knows what it is to be emotionally drained. He knows the temptations that come when our body is weak. There's a modern proverb that says, don't judge a man until you walk two miles in his boots. It means that we shouldn't be quick to condemn someone because we don't quite understand all the experiences that they have had. And maybe if we had known of all their experiences, maybe we'd come with more compassion upon them. Well, Jesus doesn't have that problem because he experienced our situation. And rather than judging us as our great high priest, he has compassion upon us. In fact, he is our high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. Just praying for us always because he has been there. And the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood means that he can relate He can relate when we're tired and lazy and cranky. He can relate because he experienced life as a man. He knows our frailty. He knows what a scrape on the knee feels like. He knows what a shot to the throat feels like, Darren. He knows kind of what a sore throat feels like as I've been kind of dealing with one this week. I've got plenty of cough drops this week going on. He he knows that sort of thing. You know, the Old Testament promises God's compassion upon his children. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. You know, the incarnation just changes that verse. Not, not that he merely remembers that we are like dust. He remembers what it's like to be like dust. And that's the good news of Christmas, is that when Christ came, he experienced our weaknesses. So it's not like, like God looks down upon us and says, oh, yeah, I, I forgot they're weak. No, he, he looks down and he says, oh, yeah, I remember when I walked the earth and was weak just like they are. That's Christmas. Jesus felt fatigue like us. Well, a fourth point. He walked and talked with us. He partied with us. He got tired, felt fatigue, and forth. He experienced people pain. He experienced people pain like, like we do. See, when Jesus took on flesh, we can just think about, oh, it's just the physical issues that he was dealing with. Right? But there's a whole social thing as well. Right? When, when we are born, when we are born into this world, we are born into a, a society. As such, we we experience problems and pains of society. And if you've lived long enough, you know that some of the most painful things about walking upon the planet comes from people. Not so much what they do to hurt you physically, but what they do socially, emotionally to hurt you. What they say to you, what they do to you. And there are times when people would strongly disagree with you, so much so that they reject you and maybe even betray you because of the social differences that we have. And, and Jesus experienced this over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, almost anywhere you look, but I find it interesting that in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, we just see massive social tension, problems, difficulties that people had with Jesus. In fact, t- t- turn over there in chapter 6. We see right at the beginning, if you have a heading of any type, it says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then in verse 14, look at how well it goes when he fed 5,000 people, right? This is like, like social welfare, like wonderful, like we got all this bread. We just got to follow this guy. We can eat. We can do whatever we want. This will be wonderful. And they wanted to make him king. It says in verse 14 that people saw the sign they had done. They said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. In verse 15, they wanted to make him king. But from that point on, though, the conflict is recorded that Jesus had with the people. They wanted more food. Over in 34, you, you see, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. We always want this bread. Give us bread. And Jesus offered himself. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a promise! We want this bread always. He said, okay, I'll give you the bread. I'm the bread. You're never going to hunger again. You're never going to thirst again. And they said, no, Jesus, I don't think you got the point. Verse 41 says the Jews grumbled because he said, I'm the bread of the bread that came down from heaven. And back and forth they went. They wanted bread, and Jesus offered himself. And, And they want bread, and Jesus offered himself. And so in verse 60, they say, wow, this is a hard saying who, who can listen to this? They weren't accepting his words. Rather, they were grumbling. In verse 61, we read, and then the, the climax of the story, the end of it, comes in verse 66 when many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him because he wasn't going to give the physical bread. He was offering the spiritual bread of life, but they were interested in the physical bread. They're ready to make him king. He's the prophet of all, all this excitement, right? Big church, 5,000 people, and then it's dwindled down to 12. That's some personal problems, personal pain. Rejection. Now, you know, in some regards, you just look at Jesus, yeah, he's tough, he's got things, he understands that. But you have so many people wishing to make him king, calling the prophet, like, yeah, you got it, you got it. And then they didn't get it and they rejected him and they're probably reviling him on the way out to the door. But we see now in verse 67, this tender scene with Jesus and the 12. He says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, isn't that a great statement? It says, we we don't have anywhere else to go except you, Jesus, and and we know you're the Holy One of God, and, and we know that you've got the words of eternal life, and we're just clinging to you. Like, they got it. But not 12 of them, only 11 of them got it because Jesus knew the truth. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, of course, this will play itself out later in the book when Judas enters with the entourage of soldiers and officers and chief priests and Pharisees carrying their lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest Jesus. And Judas is the betrayer, the one who leads it all. We find out from other Gospels he betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus experienced people pain. If not from the thousands leaving from the friend who betrayed him so badly. And the source of this pain comes from all angles. Chapter 6, we see it coming from the crowds. In chapter 7, it comes from the family. We see his brothers mocking him. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's some people, pain, conflict going on there. And then the mockery comes, even his home. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus was talking to his brother, Shirley, about who he was, uh, uh, doing these signs that they clearly saw. He said, well, if, you, if, you're, if you're really this person, why don't you go out? They're like, like, like telling him, you're the lamb, go to the slaughter. Get killed, go there. If your works are so good, they're just mocking him coming from the house. That's people pain. In chapter 8... We see the the pain not coming necessarily even from the family, but from the religious elite. Not from the crowds, not from the family, but from the the Pharisees. Now, we don't have time to read the entire chapter, but just know that the entire chapter is Jesus is going at it back and forth with the Pharisees. They they rejected him. They they called him names. If you look in chapter 8, verse 41, (coughs) they said to him this. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And what's the implication there? You were born of sexual immorality. I could use a word here, but I'm not going to use that word at this moment. But you know what it is if you're old enough to know that that's a word that they called him. Then they even used a a racial slur on him. chapter 8, verse 48... The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You can think of a racial slur that could be said, I'm not going to say that. But that's what they were saying to him, You're a Samaritan. They said he had a demon in verse 48. And finally, this, this argument, this back and forth, this people pain was so great that they tried to kill him. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So he picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out into the temple. And to understand why they went to kill him is because this word is ego-a-me. Whenever he says, I am, like I am the bread of life, I am the the, the door, I am the... The light of the world, it's always ego a me, I am, I am. It has, has this reference back to Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 when, when God revealed himself to, to Moses. He said, who shall I say sent me? He says, I am who I am. A- and that's why they're so, so angry with him because calling himself I am, he's calling himself God Almighty. Yahweh, the continuing one, is who he's making his reference to and they wanted to kill him. Jesus experienced... People pain like us. And i just, I just say this. Again, he was in that he can relate to all of our people pain that we experience. He can sympathize. He can sympathize with sibling rivalry. Chapter 7, been there, done that. He can sympathize with name calling. Been there, done that, check. He can sympathize when people reject you been there, done that. Check. He can sympathize when your name is slandered in social media for, for millions to see. He had crowds who slandered him. Check. And so he said, go to him in your pain. He's your high priest. That's, that's Christmas is Jesus coming into the flesh, experiencing it all so that he can have compassion on us. Okay, fifth point. He walked and talked with us, this normal one of the guys. Second, he partied with us. Third, he felt fatigue with us, like us. Fourth, he experienced people pain with us, and and five, he he wept with us. Or, or you might even say, right? He emoted with us, but that's really not, not a good name. But he he was he was emotional, and, and he felt that in every every sense of the word. I mean, one of the things interesting here. We, we so, so I went work through the Gospel of John. I just saw that that one. You have this physical realm of him coming in to just feeling the scrapes and bruises and the tiredness and. And second is the social realm where he's he's dealing and interacting with people and the pain and difficulties and trials that people cause. But here we see with this point by the story of, of Lazarus in chapter eleven about when he wept, we see just the emotional pain. It it just says this, when when Jesus came, he, he came fully. Body, soul, spirit. He was he he experienced everything, whether it's physically, whether it's relationally, whether it's emotionally and we see it all, and, and particularly I say Jesus wept with us because of the shortest verse in all of the Bible, chapter 11, verse 35, kids, little side note, put it in the back of your mind, if your parents ever tell you you got to memorize a verse of the Bible, this is the one to go to, John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept, can you say it all together? Jesus wept, you've memorized it, good job, all right? Let, let's, let's just look though, this whole chapter is filled with, with deep emotion, and it's filled with deep emotion, clearly, because there's been a death of a loved one. And when there's a de- whenever there's a death of a loved one, there is often deep emotion because that which you love is gone. And the chapter begins by talking about love. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so he got this little nice little home. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these brothers and sisters, all all together, presumably unmarried, um, living together in harmony. Jesus, see, we'll we'll see in verse five, he loved them, but these were here, and the, the sisters with Lazarus being ill. Sent to Jesus, said, Lord, he whom, lo- he whom you love is ill. And there we see the acknowledgement that Jesus loved Lazarus. It's was, it was a deep, deep brotherly love. It's like a family that I'm sure whenever Jesus went to Jerusalem, he'd stop by and see these three, perhaps staying with them. But Jesus, verse 4, when he heard, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So Son of God may be glorified through it. And we will look at this again next week as we think about the glory of Jesus entering into flesh. And then John makes the observation, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved this special family. Loved them dearly. And now one is sick. And Jesus full well knew, right, that the illness is going to be for the glory of God. So he knows what's going to happen about him dying and, and, and raising again. But the story goes like this, right? Lazarus dies, and then Jesus comes four days after he had died. And then Jesus comes, and Martha meets him, who says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There's there's uh, an attribution to the the power of Jesus. That if he'd have been here, Jesus would have healed him. He wouldn't have died. That's, by the way, why Jesus stayed longer. um, Staying a few days. uh, Longer. Verse 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he knew all this. If he would have been there, he wouldn't have died. He wouldn't have died. He couldn't have raised him from the dead. But that's what Martha says. And then there's some talk about the, the resurrection. Verse 25, we'll come back to that. the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But while looking at the humanity of Jesus, we really can't forget this. of Verse 25. That if you believe in Jesus, though you die, yet you will live like Lazarus did. Anyway, Martha goes, summons Mary to to come and be with Jesus. And then Mary says the same thing. Lord, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I've been around enough grieving people to know that that like the mind is, a, is kind of a fog and you're not thinking about very much and the same thing is said. You've seen so many people, the same thing is said over and over and over again to lots of people and I'm sure that Martha and Mary were, were talking about this that if only Jesus were here, He would never have died. There's a conversation at home. Oh, Jesus, why didn't you come? If only you'd have been here, He wouldn't have died. Jesus, I mean, here's, a, here, here's just crediting Jesus with the power that He can sustain a life with the Word. That is the power of of Jesus. But then we see the heart of the emotion right here in verse thirty-three, beginning of verse thirty-three. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, some, some people say he was troubled their lack of faith, uh, perhaps. But at any rate, it, it says he was greatly greatly troubled, moved in a, deeply moved in his spirit. When he sees the weeping and the emotion going along. And, and so he asks, right? Where, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And here it is, verse 35. Jesus wept. Sorrowed over this man whom he loved. Over these, these, these women, these sisters whom he loved were, were crying as well. He, just weeping for the pain that's around. You, you go to a funeral and how easy it is to weep. And Jesus experienced those sorts of things. And it's interesting how the Jews interpreted that. They say, see how he loved him. Just the extent of the love, the extent of the emotion that Jesus had. So the Jews said, see, I'm sorry, verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Mary and Martha's message, right, goes to everybody that he, he was able to keep alive. And then Jesus, verse 38, deeply moved again. He came to the womb, to the, the tomb. And I just feel the depth of the emotion, the, the depth of things happening at the, the funeral. And, and while chapter 2, he's, he's rejoicing at Canaan with the loud music and the, and the joy and the dancing and the celebration, and the new life that's beginning. So likewise here, he is sorrow and deeply moved at the funeral. There's a, there's a time to rejoice and there's a, a time to weep. And as Paul told those in Rome, we need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to weep with those who weep. And Jesus here was was weeping with us. In his humanity, I think he genuinely felt the emotion of of the moment. He wasn't some calloused outside observer merely looking on. No, he was a player in the game. Filled with sorrow and and deep emotion. And and really, that's the story of Christmas, right? Jesus coming into the flesh experiencing everything that we experience as human beings, the frailty of the flesh, the difficulty of society, the depth of emotions, both good and bad, love and sorrow. And don't ever think that these 30 years, 33 years of Jesus is ever lost upon the Lord. No, God fully remembers the depth of the power of emotion in our lives. I just think of uh, some of the Psalms there are psalms of lament that are crying out to God for help and deliverance. And again, those are like Psalm 103 that he remembers that we are bataasseked. Uh, the, the songs of lament that are, that are crying out to God in the midst of the pain and "Come, help me." those he felt deeply and he experienced not just knowing them right from afar, but actually being in them and, and feeling the sorrow of the pains of life that come. He rejoices us within our victories. He sorrows and weeps with us in our our sorrows. And of course, that sorrow turned to joy when when Jesus asked to have the stone rolled away from the tomb. and, And He said in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. And that's the illustration of verse 25. I'm the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And here was Lazarus, dead, died, and yet he shall live again. And that's the the whole message of John. John 3.16, whoever believes in in the Son has eternal life. John chapter 4, remember when Jesus was talking with the woman at the well? He says, you you drink from this water, you'll you'll thirst again. You drink from the water that I'll give you, you'll you'll never thirst ever again. Or even as he said in John chapter 6, verse 27, you'll hunger no more if you eat from Jesus. Here is, here is like eternal life in Jesus that Jesus gives. Well, my last point, and of course this is where, where John is going. Not only did he walk and talk with us, not only did he party with us, not only did he feel, feel fatigued like, like us or experience people pain like us or weep like us, but also he suffered for us. And this is where John, of course, is going, is the aiming to the cross. In chapters 13 through 17, he, he tells all about that, about, about what's going to happen, what's going to take place. He teaches disciples one last time. He, he feels the pain of these things suffering for us in chapter 17 with the, the high priestly prayer. Um, when he says, Father, the hour has come glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given Him. Here He is. He's glorified God. He's done everything that's been accomplished on earth. He knows He's going to die. He knows He's going to suffer. And then chapters 18, 19, and 20 just speak about that immeasurable suffering for us when, when Judas leads that procession out to have Him arrested. Then he's arrested and bound falsely accused, beaten times without number, sentenced ultimately to death by Pilate, led away to be crucified. As it says in chapter 19, verse 16, so they delivered him over to be crucified. Let me just read the crucifixion account for you from John's Gospel. It's it's all why John wrote. It's all about the, the culmination of everything that we believe as the church. So they took Jesus and... Chapter 19, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, Latin is Calvary. And there they crucified him. None of the gospel writers describe much about the crucifixion because everybody knew what a crucifixion entailed because they'd seen crucifixions before. They crucified him. And with him two others on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote, and in the inscription put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the King of the Jews, and Pilate answered, What I have written, I've written. And then when the soldiers who had crucified Jesus they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said, when, uh, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Adding insult to injury, he's upon the cross, and he hears this conversation, and they're taken his clothes. Every last little bit. I've heard of people who are robbed. Mostly they just feel violated. Like people would come and take their stuff. And here's Jesus. They're taking his stuff. All he has is, a, is just this cloak. The Soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of so Jesus. were his mother and his mother's sister Mary. The, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And we just, Jesus saw his mother and a disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Just dealing with his last issues of life that he's got to deal with. I mean, Jesus knows what it means to write a will. If you will. Just to take care of his mother. To see all of his things all gone. And after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, He said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of soured wine stood there and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop and held it up to His mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. He suffered for us. He came into the flesh to suffer for us to die for our sins, that over and over, the message of John is this, but believe in Him, but trust in Him, and you will have life. You won't thirst anymore, you won't hunger anymore, you'll be able to see, because I am the light of the world. You'll be rescued, your sins will be taken away, and you'll be able to enjoy everlasting life, believing in this one, who came to be in the flesh for us. And of course, that then comes with with the resurrection. And, uh, you know, I could have put a seventh point in here about the, the resurrection, that he has a resurrection body. He, he, when he was raised from the dead, he wasn't some kind of spirit out and about. No, he was there eating breakfast with his disciples, just like he had done before, because his resurrection body had, had risen, risen from the dead, and that is where our hope is, that Jesus died, was buried, and was risen again, according to the scriptures, and we can find forgiveness of sins in him all the implications of what it means that he became flesh. That he walked and talked with us. He He parted with us. He was fatigued like us. Experienced people pain like us. Felt emotional pain with us. He wept for us. He suffered for us. But he also rose from the dead for us as well. And uh, in him we can hope. So let's close our time in a word of prayer and then you'll be dismissed. Father, we... We do thank you for the incarnation. For the enfleshment of Jesus. Who experienced life as much as any of us have experienced life. In fact even more so he had. Because he lived the perfect life. And his, his joys were great and his sorrows were greater. He was called a, a man of sorrows. And Father I, I would pray that this day if there, there are people here who don't believe. Who aren't trusting in Jesus that they would put their their faith and trust in Him. God, because He's the one that, that takes away our sin, and He's the one that gives eternal life, and He's the one in whom we can have hope. So, Father, we do pray, Oh God, as you chose the disciples and brought them, we would pray that you would bring people to yourself today. God, in thinking about Christmas time, help us over these next four weeks really reflect upon. The the wondrous mystery of the incarnation, the, the glory of Jesus, his grace, and his truth. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.